Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome to another week of the Live Life Aggressive Show. Sincere Hogan, that's me. Got Mike Marlin on the other side. Very excited about this show, man. It's, it's not yeah. necessarily, you know, for some people when they first hear the, the, the main subject of the show, when they first hear this, they don't think that's very exciting. It's kind of a downer. But, but just with the things that our guests are going to bring up as far as, you know, treatment and and different findings and discoveries that's going on right now. A lot of exciting things are coming down the down the line. That's what's making that's what's going to make this very exciting. And I think that it's going to help a lot of people listening who's been touched by the topic of the day, in in some shape, fashion, or form, or anything like that. It's going to actually like open their eyes and maybe get some things sparking in their brain as well as it's, it's always good to have options, man, especially when it comes that's to that right. subject because now it seems. You know, on the surface, it seems like there are not very many options. It's either this or that. Like, it's either, you know, go deal with some quacks or, you know, get nuked, you know, and, yeah. and, and hope for the best. You know, or, you know what, hey, you only got so much time, so you need to get your affairs in order. You know, so, right. Right. you know, it's, but the way technology and the way the science is moving right now, man, it's really good to have someone that's actually in the field doing the work, not just reading what other people are doing and just assuming and you're just going on all this other stuff, man. But if they're actually getting their hands dirty in the lab and, and working on this stuff, it feels good to know that someone's out there and that they know that, hey, it's, some, it's, some, it's a brighter future coming along, you know, for such a very tough situation to deal with. So, yeah, And it's actually a brighter present. There's already a lot available as our guest is going to get into. But here's here's yep. what I want to have people, uh, emphasize about cancer to people is you don't want to wait until you or a loved one gets cancer before you start researching the topic and know what to right. do. You want to know right now, today, exactly what you would do if this ever happens to you or someone you care about. Don't wait mm-hmm. until it happens and then you go into research mode and all that and you're, and you're overwhelmed by information. You have no clue. You want to know exactly what to do. And that's what this episode is going to help you do is give you some options so that if something like this happens, you can get into action immediately towards something that's effective. Mm-hmm. And it's I was watching the documentary with Andy Whitfield, who played Spartacus. You know, one of, all three of us are big fans of the show. And his documentary is on Netflix now, Be Here Now. And as many of you know, he died from cancer. He was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, I think, around 2010, after the first season of the show was filmed. And as I'm watching this documentary, it really frustrated me. Because you could tell that they really had no, he and his wife really had no clue what to do. They do what most people do. They go to the hospital. They talk to a doctor. Some oncologist is going to give you that perspective. So you take that in. And then you go to the opposite extreme where, in this case, Andy's flying to India. He's talking to quacks that are giving him astrology on, on what he should do. It's like, well, according to your sign, here's what you should do. He's going to these Ayurvedic people, and I like Ayurvedic medicine, but that's not what I would gravitate towards with cancer. With cancer, you want to go to someone who actually has successes, stories of treating people. I don't want to go to someone who's never worked with someone who's had cancer before and successfully treated. And the more people they've treated successfully, the better. The last thing you want to do is go to someone who goes, well, I've never treated anyone, but we can, we'll try to figure it out. You'll be the first one. You know, you're the or you ask him, it's like, have, you know, have, have you ever helped him with a few this? Well, you know, I had this one guy that came, just one, really? You realize there's a lot of people with cancer in this world, and you only cured one. <laughs> Those are not good odds, but. And the, and the chances are there. That one just went into remission all on its own. Exactly. It had nothing to do with the person. <laughs> it was just one of those odd cases where it just went into remission. No one knows why. This person's trying to take the credit. It's like, well, I got you on that raw food diet. I think that's what did it. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, without further ado, Dr. Inkledon, how are you doing today? Great to have you back. 
Uh, thanks, guys. I'm doing really well, and uh, I'm pretty excited. I was kind of looking forward to uh, this particular show because yeah. uh, we're in a, a really exciting time um, with being able to do like just really amazing things to help people. And um, maybe first, uh, let me just share. You know, uh, when I was a young scientist, my goal was to, you know, make athletes become superhuman. I got a chance to work with some of the biggest, strongest guys in history. And I was pretty much, I loved it. I had a lot of fun. And then, um, you know, as time goes on, and I start seeing a lot of these guys would have health issues, I kept finding, like, this calling to kind of go more off into, you know, dealing with, let's say, disease or injuries or, you know, things that, let's just say, not as sexy or attractive to deal with when you're a young scientist. And um, I started encountering more and more guys that, on the outside, I mean, they were superhuman studs. But on the inside, they had terminal, like, stage 4 cancers, which doesn't seem to fit. Like, you kind of think, oh, if this guy's been fit and active his whole life, how the heck is he getting cancer? And back then, we had no clue why. Uh, we just knew that it would happen for some people. Like, you know, for example, exercise is preventative against cancer, right? So then how is it then guys that are extremely fit get cancer? If they were doing all the stuff to prevent cancer, how did they get the cancer? You know, so right. at that point, we didn't know things about genetics and genomics and epigenetics and post-translational modifications of proteins and all these kind of like fancy jargon that scientists are around now. Um, but today we have a lot more of those details and the molecular mechanisms. And what I'm seeing now is more and more people are being given outdated and old treatments that simply will not work, but they're being misled into, well, this is what you have to do, and it's not even close to the truth, and so uh, it's, I would say it's, it's kind of sad on the one hand. Um, I've had some very high-profile people come in, and they, would, they, would, they weren't happy with the, let's just say, the large center they were going to because their cancer was still present after two years of therapies. It was getting worse after months of therapy. And I would tell them, well, the approach was wrong. See, what they did is they, you walked in and they gave you a diagnosis based on geography. So you have this tumor in your lungs, so therefore it's a lung cancer. Yeah. But they never took a biopsy of the tumor, tested the individual cancer cells, and got the details like the genes of the cancer, they never got the molecular um, substances or the, let's say the molecular diagnostics, the molecules producing these cancer cells, and they never did any of the tumorcidal or cytotoxic assays, in other words, what kills this cancer, and then <clears throat> determine the type of treatment for you. So when you just label someone, hey, based on geography, and then throw some drugs at them, it's a poor relationship. It doesn't work really well. And so some stats kind of throw out there. Um, cancer is the most feared disease in the world right now. So people hear cancer and instantly like, oh my God. And they assume the worst mostly because they're told so little by their doctor. So if your doctor doesn't tell you anything, you don't feel more, you don't feel more confident about the experience. No. You feel more scared, more lonely, like, oh my God. Like a lot of people will think about, what do I do about my family? Especially a lot of yeah. guys I see, right. they're the providers for their family. And I never once heard a guy say, what am I going to do about me? No, I hear all these guys saying, what am I going to do with my kids? And so it's almost like it compounds the problem in your head, right? Because you're not worried about one person. You're worried about, you know, three, five, six people now, um, especially if you're the provider for a large family. Then uh, the things that I see is that 
people suffer from visual bias. So everyone thinks, I'm going to go to this large center and get the best quality of care. The stats are very clear. Every person diagnosed with cancer, one out of three dies. Now, when you look at why are people dying from cancer, the evidence is overwhelmingly clear. They did not die because there was no treatment or cure for them. They died because they got the wrong treatment. And I want to make sure that's really emphasized because what I hear people say, oh, there's no cure for cancer. I hear like those, that group, then I hear other knuckleheads going, oh, we've been able to cure cancer forever. And then, you know, so you kind of get like two extreme views, if you will. And really the answer is kind of more in the middle, like typically right. what you expect. Right. The answers are there, but it takes effort. It takes work. If you're someone that's on insurance, you're probably not going to get the best quality of care. Because right. you're going to go into a model where you're going to be given like a small fraction of the options that are available. So your doctor's going to say, oh, yeah, here's what you go, or here's a drug your insurance covers. They're not going to tell you about other options that your insurance won't cover. So it's kind of like giving, like if you ask me a question, and out of 10 possibilities, I just give you one. Well, then when you make your decision, it's based on that one ver that one you know a piece of data that I gave you right it's not based on a consensus or a perspective of all ten it's more global, so then of course your decisions are going to be a little biased they're going to be limited uh, but then that leads up to people making very scary incorrect decisions that ultimately will kill them and I've seen it happen many times. people go into a large center they don't get a result. And then they decide they're going to go back because they're just afraid of what to do. Um, what I hope we can accomplish today in this podcast is I want to make, I want to kind of go over just some basic points. People are free to disagree with them, but I could tell you is we have amazing results. And the first thing I want to kind of some, some myths I want to break or, or, or hopefully put to rest. Every single person comes in and goes, what kind of research do you have on what you're doing? And that sounds like it's an intelligent question, except that what that means is they're basically saying every human being will respond the same way. We know because of genetic and microbiome and epigenetic and all kinds of other environmental interactions, every single human being is unique. There's no single study that could possibly tell you everything that's going to happen with a given individual. So the way you break that flawed approach is you study the individual, and then once you know the details about that person, then you look at the research to see what's been done to help you best understand how to help that person. Most people do it the opposite way. They look at data outside their body and then try to force that treatment on their own selves without knowing if it's ever going to work or not to begin with. That incorrect perspective is ultimately will kill many people. Um, so secondly, uh, I'm going to make a point. Masking of symptoms is huge business. There is no financial incentive for large institutions to fix you and treat you right away. The money is in long-term treatments. So get you in and have you keep coming back every six months, every year, et cetera, because that generates far more lifetime value for that client. We know, for example, right now, we can do special tests, we could treat you and then retest you for a cost of $6,000 to maybe $7,000 well before a tumor 
or um, you would ever get to even like a stage one type of cancer. Most people won't invest in their health and do something preventatively. They'll wait until the cancer progresses to a stage two, three, or four, and then they'll take action. So by doing so, they're increasing the expense associated with their care exponentially. Um, some other points I think I'd want to share is I've watched lots of people have a, so typically I watch a husband or a wife that gets cancer and their partner is focused on the, let's say their husband or wife that has the cancer and they ignore their own health. And recently I had a very, very sad case where a really wonderful guy, this guy was 70, let's say 70 something years old, very funny, very witty, um, has a pretty cool background. He was in charge of um, a very large uh, shipping service and he knew about you know transportation details all over the world and how to quickly and efficiently get stuff from anywhere to anywhere else, which was, it's not something I would normally ever think about personally, but when you're talking to someone with experience in that area, it's kind of cool to see like all the potential possibilities are to quickly resolve like a shipping problem. <clears throat> and what I found out about this guy is his wife had a very serious issue and he spent years helping her until she ultimately passed away. And while he was helping her, he never did anything for himself. So in 2015, he was diagnosed with a stage four prostate cancer. He went on for treatment for two years and his markers kept getting worse. And not a single doctor that he interacted with did anything to change what they were doing. So imagine this. Imagine if you came in, I give you a drug, and you're getting worse. If I keep doing it and doing it and doing it, do I sound intelligent? Do I sound like I know what I'm doing? <laughs> if I'm doing one thing and it's not getting better, wouldn't you expect me to change what I'm doing at some point? And what I'm seeing is that um, there's a lack of the uh, options available for patients in a lot of centers. And so as a result, people come in. And the professionals don't know what to do. They got one option. If this don't work, that's it. You die. Instead of saying, well, this didn't work, let's figure out why. Let's make sure you get the right option. So here's how you can make sure you get the right option. Um, I'll say up front, it is expensive. Uh, you could expect to pay anywhere from 50 grand to 72 grand up front um, to get all this done. And then you, who knows, based on the details you, you get, you know, it might be a hundred bucks all the way up to three thousand dollars a month afterwards in order to get the information you need to make sure the cancer is completely gone from your body and it doesn't come back. Now most people, as soon as they hear those numbers, they'll run and they'll go to a place that takes only their insurance and won't give them anything else, and they'll be dead in two to three months. That is what the average person will do. And so the way you prevent that is first you find a facility that will test every gene in your body. And this, at first, you might say, well, why do I need to know all 22,000 genes? And the reason is we're starting to get data that shows if you have certain genes, your risk for certain cancers is going to be very high. And so let's say you have, if you're a guy, you have a prostate cancer, if it's stage one or stage two, that's, that's like 100% treatable. Uh, basically, if, it's, if, if prostate cancer is found early enough, it's almost a guaranteed successful outcome. Most guys don't, don't examine themselves, don't get regular checkups with their doctor. 
So they'll never catch the stage one or stage two. By the time they see there's a problem, it's going to be stage four. And so what you see is at that stage four level, there's a successful treatment response of 28%. So in earlier stages or earlier types of prostate cancer, which say it's local, hasn't spread, it's pretty good success rate. And so but what happens when they treat that prostate cancer? Uh, percentage of guys wind up getting other types of cancer later on. And it's because if you focused only on the cancer that's currently present, you're not doing anything to prevent a future cancer. And that's a huge issue right now. Um, almost everybody I met knows someone that went in for treatment and they were told, hey, just, you're cancer-free. And then six months to a year later, it's worse than ever. I mean, I, I see people at time that tell me that story. And here's the really sad part. They were lied to. They were never cancer-free. See, what happens is there's no perfect test for cancer. There's no test that goes to absolute zero. So the best testing methods, when I, when I talk to the scientists that invent these technologies or research these technologies specifically, those are guys, that's not what I do. I don't research some of those specific technologies. What they'll tell me is, you know, the cutoff is maybe you can get down to about 2 million, maybe 10 million cells. So let's just say you go in and you get some either blood tests done or some imaging method, and it says there's nothing there. The experts are saying there could still be 2 million to 10 million cells in your body. Now, if you, you think, hey, nothing is here, so I'm cancer-free. Well, those 2 million to 10 million cells that were left over, those were the cells that didn't respond to the treatment you just went through. So think of them as more robust and very sturdy cancer cells, like super-duper bad guys, if you will. Yeah. Now, six months from now, these guys have been growing in your body. When you go in for your follow-up PET scan or your follow-up whatever blood test, now it shows up significantly higher because for six months or th even three months, nothing was done. And we can measure dramatic changes in as little as two months. So... Cancer is, is not something you want to wait on. It's not something you want to take your time and see. It's something you want to get objective details and then make very specific decisions given the unique presentation for that individual. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. So that the take-home point there is cancer is unique for every person. So if you're looking for research, the point I want to make is if every single person is unique, you will never have research to tell you what to do for that person because they never would have been studied before because they wouldn't yeah. have existed. So the way we address that is the following way. Um, get every gene measured in your body. So these are your genes that you were born with. Then you would test the cancer cells and you would get the gene sequencing of the cancer. You would then find out what does it take to kill those cancer cells, what natural substances, what drugs kill them. So now that's how the doctors know what to do. If you don't do that, that specific test right there, how could you possibly know what substances will kill your cancer? And the really sad part, almost, well, not almost every single cancer case I have ever seen when they come here first thing we look at is, okay, what type of tumorcidal assays or cancer sensitivity assays were done? Patients have none. They haven't had anything done. So that means they were put on a drug that no one even knows will kill their cancer cells, 
and they you know went to this pretty brutal harsh process third area is testing of micronutrients environmental chemicals and I'll just you know let's just say um I'll, I'll make that very broad and say substances or molecules outside of let's say the cancer specific world and the reason for that is we find some people that you know they don't really have any cancer genes that that are that are fight that we could discover yet they have pretty aggressive cancers and then later on we find they have an overabundance of some sort of styrofoam chemical in their body or some other chemicals that man doesn't make like if you have this in your body you got it from outside the body and there's specific areas in the United States particularly in the New Jersey area um where historically different companies have dumped chemicals in the environment and we kind of know the impact in general like those chemicals that were dumped in the water or dumped in the land they've moved around they didn't stay in one spot and we can't always predict how those chemicals will basically get into us and we've literally tested people and found all kinds of weird stuff that at first glance I'm like I don't even know what that is I've never heard of that hmm. and then when I would talk to the scientists at the lab and they would educate me well this is what it is and this is where it comes from and it may start out as one molecule but that it's broken down in the environment and then it gets picked up and it kind of makes it through the food supply or the food chain whatever you want to say and now someone is eating this animal or eating this plant which is loaded with those chemicals. Right. And it's a build up over time and then that build up damages our own DNA and that leads to basically a process where we get a, a cancer cell that can sort of just grow and grow and grow in number and and you know harm us in ways that we don't want. And then another area is testing our immune cells. Um we all make cancer cells. and our cancer cells are killed off by our natural killer cells and one of the basic questions you would expect every single cancer center in the world to address is well no matter what cancer you have why didn't your natural killer cells deal with that already like why are you at stage 1 2 3 or 4 why are you you know the doctor should be saying how did you get here because naturally your body should be killing this stuff off so what stopped in your body that this isn't working anymore and then when we test uh we do all kinds of um we call lymphocyte subset panels and all kinds of immune diagnostics and basically we're looking to see how many different um types of uh, immune cells people have that should be present like this is well defined uh information it's not like you, uh, doctors can easily access reference ranges and stuff like that and then we look at the function like are the cells doing do they work like they should i do in normal things or they dysfunctional and this is where you see very interesting combinations so someone that's low in selenium or zinc or vitamin a or vitamin d and it's probably you could probably just say any vitamin or mineral right you could just probably make it that broad their immune cells will not work the way they should so imagine you have these natural killer cells and they're lazy they see a cancer cell they do nothing at all Now you go in and you get chemo and the chemotherapy kills your natural killer cells. So now you have nothing from your body fighting cancer, but the chemotherapy wasn't matched and proven to be cytotoxic to the cancer cells. So it's messing you up, you're losing your hair, you're getting weaker, and it's not doing much to the cancer cells. Now because you have no immune system left, 
you start getting all these opportunistic infections. The opportunistic infections result in the production of lipopolysaccharides that make your cancer cells resistant to the chemo and to radiation. And all this time, not a single doctor ever said, hey, I wonder if you have any infections that are interfering with, you know, these, uh, the, the treatments that we're using. So this is a big problem right now. And um, I, I bring this up because I look at all these major centers and all of the funding, all of the driving forces are to discover new drugs than not to change the approach. And the problem right now, this is not a single drug you know, this is not a, a situation where a single drug is going to solve the problem. This is a situation where we need to change our approach because a drug-based approach would only address maybe the cytotoxic aspects, like, hey, this drug killed a cancer. It's not addressing, well, what keeps you from getting cancer again in the future? It's not addressing, why did your immune system allow this to happen? It's not addressing, why do you have all these chemicals in your body that don't belong there? And so... Um, you know, so I wanted to kind of just mention some of that stuff because every single patient says to me, wow, no one has ever done that to us before or, or you know, shared this information. And um, the way that we've, uh, you know, so I, I, I developed this, let's say, current process, if you will, with the team of professionals I have here and some very bright minds located all over the world, basically because I kept seeing flaws. Like, how does someone with a lot of money die from cancer when they have access to all these top docs. So you got money, you got resources, you got bright people. So how does this guy die? And you look and you see, well, wait a minute. They never did this. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. And it's like, okay, so you didn't really leverage the collective intelligence of all these bright minds the way you should. Instead, what happened is you have bright minds arguing with each other over something that ultimately didn't matter anyway because the guy still died. So these are the things that you know, need to be talked about because no one is talking about them and no one is sharing, all right, here's how to change the approach. Now, um, uh, I know I've, I do a lot out there. And uh, do, you, do you guys want to say anything or should I just keep talking? <laughs> well, I, well, I had one point. Wait, wait, was, oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know, I'm just sitting there like trying to take down those. But, you know, when you mentioned just even getting to the water situation, um, like in New Jersey where they dumped the chemicals there, you know, at, you know, a few years ago we had, you know, the nuclear reactor, you know, from the tsunami happening over in Japan. So, you know, yep. by now, you know, a lot of that, that runoff has gone into the Pacific Ocean and probably made its way here to the United States by now. And then also I'm here in the Gulf Coast. I'm here in Texas, right next to Louisiana, where you had BP had a major oil spill that was reported. That one was yep. reported. You know, there was many more that didn't go reported. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the Gulf waters as well. Have you seen any cases or even worked with any patients where you've seen an increase in those in that toxicity from people coming from those areas, you know, where it might actually start to feed, you know, those cancer cells or something like that. It just might just start messing with their health. We start seeing more people that's coming from the West Coast and from the Gulf Coast as well that you, that might be compared to what you saw, like with a lot of people in the New Jersey area as well. Yeah, so um, I can't say off the top of my head, I can recall a single, like an individual case, but, you know, um, what, what I'll kind of indirectly answer that, so the, the short answer is no. I, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. Um, maybe the more long-winded answer is that um, the CDC has really cool uh, analytics capabilities with their databases so you can put in your zip code 
and you mm-hmm. can search for the incidence of based on the the ICD-9 or the ICD-10 diagnoses. So you can basically find like if people had certain types of problems by state, by zip code, you can do it by gender, by age group, different things like that. So the value there, if anyone was curious, they could just go to CDC, I think .gov. .gov, yeah. Yeah, and then just kind of you know you got to fumble around because it's not super intuitive, but you, you invest a few minutes and then you basically will figure it out, and you can pull up stuff. And um, what what I find surprising is there's not better dissemination of that information because you know there's certain um, pockets of the United States where there's definitely a higher risk or higher, I should say, a higher incidence of certain types of cancers. And despite that, no one's really talking about it. It's, it's yeah. almost like, you know, so like the people locally may know about it. Like um, uh, what I'll do is if I get invited to do like a guest presentation or guest lecture somewhere, and oftentimes the topics are determined by the hosting institution. Um, lots of people, even if it starts out as like, um, you know, I want to lose fat and muscle type of, you know, a workshop. A lot right. of people ask about, well, what about cancer? What about this other stuff? Because they're not getting helpful information that they want. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll just say, well, here's how we'll find it. We'll, you know, pull up uh, Internet access, go to cdc.gov, put it in the zip code, then overview some of the things that are there. And what you hear all the time is people go, oh, yeah, my aunt, my uncle had that. And there'll right. be this like light bulb going off in people's heads, like, "Wow, mm-hmm. <laughs> I never knew this was as big as it is. I just thought it was in my family. I didn't realize it's in everybody else's family too that lives yeah. around here." Yeah, you know, because I have to wonder about that because you know, here in Houston, right outside of Houston, is um, Pasadena, which we have a lot of the energy and oil refiners there, and you got Texas City, which is right between Houston and Galveston, and you always have. I always wonder about the air. Like, you almost know when you're close to that area when you're driving around Houston. If you go anywhere to the north side, the north part of downtown, you'll start to smell the change in the air, so to speak. You can just tell. Like, there's times when I'm heading to northeast Texas and I have to pass through that part of Houston to get out of town. And I can just smell. I'm just like telling my wife, like, can you close the vents, you know, in the car? Because it's just like you just it's like I know you can just smell that change. And I have to wonder for those people who live in that area. You know, I always wonder, like, what are the cancer rates for people that live in like Pasadena and Deer Park and all these places right outside of Houston, as well as even going a little bit further outside of Texas? You know, I have to wonder with the whole water crisis that's going on in Flint, Michigan right now. I have to wonder, like, you know, what are the stats are going on with that with that issue now? Because that water's been contaminated for a long time. So I have to wonder, like, what's going on as far as the families and the residents in those areas as far as, you know, cancer and, and, and other things that could be applied to what can happen when you have poison water coming from those type of pipes, you know, and that plumbing and, and everything else that's going on there and why nothing more is being done about it. You know, yeah. why that's not like there's a red flag right there. I mean, come on, man. It's just like these are your citizens, you know, in your country, you know, the, the so-called greatest country in the world. Where we have all these advancements and all this technology and all these great minds and doctors. And, you know, so it, it becomes that thing where you start thinking, like, okay, what's more important here is like, are we trying to let people get sick so therefore they can be dependent on the drugs? You know, or, you know, are we really looking out for each other and really want to find a cure for these things? And also, do a preemptive strike on these situations. So there's not going to, they're not going to be as susceptible to be sick from these situations because a lot of this stuff can be controlled. You know, there, there's some things that can be controlled. This is a lot of man-made stuff right here. And, you know, just, it, it makes you start to think. And like you said, you're, you're talking and then all of a sudden those, those light bulbs are going off like, yeah, man, you know what? 
Yeah, my uncle, yeah, he he got the same thing, and then my aunt, and then my cousin, but they were healthy as a horse. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, man, but I don't think that a horse is riding around in a chemically infested town like that next to a factory. Yeah. Well, it offers a possible explanation for Andy Whitfield, right? Because he was a young, mm-hmm. healthy guy. He was only right. 49, I think, when he passed and very fit for the show Spartacus. Yeah. But Australia has an extremely high level of toxins. In fact, there's more men with high levels of estrogen in Australia than other parts of the world. So I'm wondering how much of a contributing factor, if not the primary factor, was environmental right. in Andy Whitfield's case. Yeah, so that's a that's a good point. So one, um, uh, you know, in, in his particular case, uh, no one took the time to test his cancer to see what would be the most effective tools to kill it. Right. So in, um, you know, you could have hormone uh, factors that drive cancer. So for example, sure. androgens, estrogens, growth factors. You could have certain cytokines like interleukin-1-beta that could drive, you know, cancer. Um, you could have other substances that, uh, for example, things like lipopolysaccharides, which are basically think of them as toxins produced by bacteria and other organs that attach to something called toll-like receptors in cancer cells. And a consequence of that binding is it makes that cancer cell resistant to chemotherapy and to radiation therapies. So so imagine, if you will, if someone's got a weak immune system, they're going to be more susceptible to all kinds of opportunistic infections, meaning bad guys that normally our immune system would kill off easily, now we can't do anything against. Those bad guys, even though they may not be considered super threatening to our health, you got to remember that if we have no immune system, those things are going to be kind of uh, weak. You know, we're going to be kind of weaker to fight those things. Right. So as a result, they'll make us more uh, more a prey, if you will, to fight the cancer, and so uh, or more susceptible to the negative consequences of the cancer. Um, what could be done is you can actually take samples of a tumor or you could take a blood sample. Depending on the type of cancer, you may want to do one of those two approaches or both, and you send in the specialty labs. We usually use three labs for every case. If it's appropriate, in some cases, we may only use two labs. And each lab has their own specific methods for testing what it takes to kill those cancer cells. So what happens is, think of it this way. I have a plan A now and a plan B very quickly. So imagine you come in, you have a stage four cancer. No one in the world will know what it takes to kill that cancer yet. But once we get those cells out of your body, let's say you get some cancer cells, and it's close to the in vivo state of your body, in other words, as close as what's going on inside, we test those cells, figure out how to kill them off. We then want to have our plan. And what if by some small chance plan A didn't work? We want to have our backup plan already in place. 100% of people going for treatment have no backup plan. So when stuff doesn't work, guess what? They get start stressing out, and what does that do? It makes it even worse. Cortisol goes right. up, and they have an even right. more weaker immune system. So um, I go into it thinking I don't know enough, and I don't know what I'm doing. So now as a scientist, what am I going to do? I'm going to measure every detail possible so I know exactly what to do so I don't have to guess, and I can get a reproducible outcome. 
Um, so that's you know that's kind of the way you you make things let's say happen. Um, even when like we have right now, uh, we have one case. It's a young lady with a very very rare cancer. There's been maybe 30 in history that have been reported, and she's doing pretty good so far. She's not cancer free yet, um, but she's got the best results so far. And um, in her particular case, there was no book, there was no expert, there was no resource I could go to and say, hey, what do I do? So you know, how do we figure out what to do when there's no prior history yeah. that guides you? Well, you start from like the same way you would anyone. You find out who they are, find out what's going on inside them, and then that's how you know what to do. Is there a comprehensive checkup you do? So, for example, let's say I flew to your center this week. Is there a checkup process you could put me through where you do a thorough analysis and let me know where I'm at? Think, hey, Mike, you're more susceptible to this, or this looks like it's on the horizon. So make you make sure you make these modifications. Yeah, I mean, in general, I would say um, there is, but some of that would depend on like what you have going on. You know, like um, so. Let's say I'll use my own self as an example, right? So let's just say I was flying in to see me, right? And uh, I don't ever want that kind of hassle, but if it did happen, I uh, <laughs> I would, you know, my my his my personal health history would say, all right, this guy's got really badly damaged joints from years of abusing his body in competition. Um, and so my like I might say to you, hey, my concern is I have you know these family members with this these health issues, and I'm worried about getting those health issues in the future. But right now, my main concern is, you know, I got advanced arthritis. So then I would respond with, all right, here's, let's just look at it first. Here's everything you should know, and here's what it costs. Now that you could see everything in front of you, you know, here's what it costs to look at your arthritis. Here's what it costs to look at some cancer markers that you may not have now, but you want the peace of mind of knowing, hey, I don't got anything in me type of thing. And then once you have that, now you kind of know what your personal priorities are, what resonates best for you. Now yeah. you could kind of make a decision, hey, I want to do this first. So what I'm seeing, for example, like um, we have a lot of like, uh, I'll just say CEO entrepreneur types that fly in. And for the most part, none of these guys have anything really wrong with them. You know, they're just, they're just tired and they're maybe getting a little bit fatter. And, you know, they know, hey, something's going in the wrong direction, but I don't have any major diagnosis, right? I don't have a cancer uh, or I don't have arthritis or heart disease, like the big stuff that you hear about. Mm-hmm. And um, we go over things. A lot of those guys will approach it from a business perspective, right? Well, I got a budget for this quarter. This one to spend. And this other stuff I'm really interested in doing. So what I'm going to do is put this on, you know, second quarter, third quarter, et cetera. So now... They have a. They basically have a health strategy, so they get to do everything they want, but there's no financial stress of any kind. Um, they don't have to worry about like you know, was there going to be an unexpected bill coming in because they know everything up front, so now they can plan for it appropriately. And uh, one of the things in particular that's getting tremendous, let's say, attention right now, is uh, lots of guys are doing every gene in their body. Um, there's some really cool stuff about that. Uh, you know, since the focus of the show is about cancer, um, one of the things that comes out of this data is uh, your risk for every single study ever done that's linked to every gene. It says, hey, if you have this gene, there's a high risk of cancer. We have the brightest minds in the world. It's connected to um, groups from Harvard and Stanford and then some super-duper, like, 
computer science guys that have, you know, lots of PhDs after their names that get excited about looking at computer science data. So you got like all these bright people developing these algorithms that do what's called data mining. So you know all of your genes and they're looking at all the research specific for your genes and it will tell you, hey, you have this gene and this gene is a known risk for cancer. However, the original studies were done on people in this country. They weren't done on you, you know, like or someone close to you in your country. So then the strength. Hey. Yeah, I'm here. I think we lost him. Yeah, we lost he's him. In and okay. Yeah, his line dropped. So okay. Saying. I'll just text him and tell him to call back in. <laughs> hey, guys. Sorry hey, about that. Hey, that. Not no problem. I don't know what the hell happened, honestly. I just texted you, Mike, that uh, I better pay my phone bill. <laughs> I have no idea what the hell happened. I'll tell you what, though. I do hate these phone lines anyway, so this might be the incentive I need just to throw them out the window and get new ones. <laughs> oh, was that a landline you were calling in? Yeah, it's called a landline. Oh, yeah, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, everything went down for the entire building, so I don't really Oh, know. really? Okay. Oh, wow. It's all back yeah. on, so. I was, I was going to call for my cell. I'm like, yeah, the problem with the cell is it gets a little cuts in and out. Yeah, yeah. Well, this sounds pretty good, what you're on right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so then, um, I guess, uh, where would you like to pick up from? Because um, on my end, I'm not exactly sure where it got to. Oh, I was like, dang it. I was like hoping. I was like, well, it's a good thing he has an outline so he can remember what he, what he was well, talking about. Well, yeah, so why, don't we, why don't we pick up where, since you and I were just talking about one point you brought oh. up where you said some of these therapies can be 100 to 300,000 a month. Which yeah. is going to be cost prohibitive to most people, probably ninety nine percent. Well, that's, oh, yeah. that's, 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 that's well, no, no. I, I was saying no. Um, on the therapies, it would be from a thousand, no, a hundred dollars to three thousand. Oh, a hundred dollars. Oh, okay. okay. I thought yeah, you meant a hundred thousand yeah. to three hundred thousand. Okay. Uh, no, well, so that, that's that's really a good point yeah. to bring up about yeah. um, you know, expenses because uh, it, it's very deceptive, you know. So. So uh, the number one, well, I don't know if it's number one right now. I'd have to double check my facts. But at one point, um, medical expenses was one of the top reasons people were filing bankruptcy. And the reason is people say, oh, I got insurance, and they go to the hospital. And then at some point, insurance doesn't cover something or a lot of something, whatever it is. And now the laws say, well, the patient's responsible. And here's the here's the problem with this whole system is that let's say you come to me, I'm gonna do some tests, it's eighty nine dollars. That same test in its average hospital price in the United States would be about six hundred and forty eight dollars. So just when you walk through the door in a hospital, you could expect to pay, you know, let's say eight times, maybe nine times, maybe ten times more money. So the last place you want to go if you're sick is the hospital because you're going to be paying seven to ten times more. And we're talking about from a purely business cash flow analysis. But what does everybody say? Oh, they take my insurance. And it's this because they don't have to pay anything up front. So they don't reach to the wallet up front and they go, oh, this feels comfortable to me. Right. Now what happens is the insurance covers, let's say it covers 50%. And they go like, oh, I got fifty percent coverage. Yeah, but you paid six fifty. I mean, your six fifty test, you pay three twenty five. I could have done it for eight right. dollars. Like, right. Insurance right. does not mean it's a better cash price or a better, let's say, financial decision for you. 
Well, I, I actually don't think we should have health insurance at all. I have a strong oh, test on that. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I think yeah, the I'm, free I'm market, there. I think, I think we should have the free market decide just like everything else where you pay for services just like anything else and then let competition drive down prices. Yeah. You pick the price you can afford as opposed to everyone has to have health insurance and then you, then, then you're bound by the restrictions on there. Prices are jacked up artificially. Yeah. You can only go with people that right. your provider. I, I, I have health insurance for a catastrophic event. But in terms of getting quality care, I don't even bother looking at who's covered by my insurance. Yeah. I find the best person and go there. Yeah, exactly. You yeah, know. that's a, that's a really good point. I feel exactly the same way. And I've even got I've looked at data. You know, uh, human medicine versus you know animal or veterinary medicine. Hmm. Um, years ago, treating an animal was more expensive than treating a human. Hmm. And today, treating a human is way more expensive. And now you look at okay. Doctor salaries have gone down or not changed much. Every single major medical center has downsized the level of competency and intelligence within their organization because they, they what used to be like an MSN was a, then a BSN, then an LPN, and now it's uh, you know a nursing assistant. In some cases, it's a volunteer. So you got all these people in hospitals that you know are, let's just say have the least level of education for the position they're in. So that's going to just drive labor you know, rates down. So why is healthcare gone up so exponentially? Because insurance companies have to make a profit. And, and some of the stupid stuff Obama did, he made it so he passed some of these rules so insurance companies couldn't make that much money. So all they did was spend more on legal yeah. fees and drive up litigation. Mm. So the part of what people are paying for now is you're paying for the fraction of the expense for an anticipated lawsuit <laughs> that you have no benefit from in any way. <laughs> it's like prepaid legal services. And we yeah, know kind of yeah. And we know what kind of scam that is. But, yeah. Well, let's think oh, about I, this oh, also. When you're talking scam. about when you talk about the veterinary care compared to hu- human care, also think about this. You know, psychologically, you know, just from a behavioral standpoint, humans tend to treat their animals far better than they treat themselves. We go oh, yeah. out of our way to make sure that our, our animals are taken care of, no matter whether it's dogs, cats, horses. If it's just a farm animal, you know, for the most part, we go out of our way to make sure that they're healthy. Because I think in the back of our minds, we think about how expensive, because we are thinking about those old facts, maybe those old facts that how expensive it was, you know, to treat an animal, that they go out of their way to make sure that animal is healthy because they think, it's oh, it's going to be way too much it's going to cost too much to, to treat this animal because then there's the other option. If you can't afford it, you have to put them down. And no one wants to think about that with their animals. But they don't think about that with themselves because guess what? It's the same outcome. It's like either you go out of your way to treat yourself and, and be as healthy as possible and do all the right things preventative you know, ahead of time, or eventually you're going to have these outrageous costs where eventually you're not going to be able to afford to get treatment and someone's going to have to put you down. You know, and so I think we don't think about that until it's too late for us. But we go out of our way, especially when it comes to our animals and our children. You know, yeah. we think oh, yeah. about that. You know, but as far as ourselves, we feel like we're expendable when it comes to that. And it's like, oh, you know what? I don't, I'm not going to worry about that right now. I got bigger things to worry about. I got to make sure that my dog's taken care of. But you know what? It's going to suck for your dog when you die. Because now, all the things that you were trying to prevent going wrong with his life is going to go wrong with his life. Because now you're gone. Well, who's going to take care of the dog? Have you taken care of that yet? Have you set that up so someone can take care of him in your absence? If not, guess what? It's just like a child when they have no one to take care of him. It becomes that ward of the state where the animal is now just what's going to happen. They may end up in, in a shelter. And then they're 
If they don't find a home, they're going to put them down. And then it was all for nothing. <laughs> so, you know, you just, it's one of those things where you got to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. And it's not the other way around. But people feel like, okay, I'm being selfish by doing that. But actually, you're not. You're being, like, like I always say, you're being selfishly selfless in that situation. So that's just my opinion as far as why, you know, we, <laughs> our animals tend to outlive us or they're getting, they have better, they're healthier than we are. Well, it's also with veterinary medicine is who has health insurance for their pets? Nobody, basically. I mean, it's out there, but very few people it's out get there. it. Exactly. So, exactly. so these vet these vets are getting paid better than most doctors are because they're getting paid right. exactly what their service is. It's not being reduced by health insurance. Right. So you're right. going to get a lot of smart people in that. That's the way it should be for anything else. You go to your doctor and you pay whatever she he or she charges, as opposed to she has to artificially or he or she has to artificially arbitrarily change their rates, taking into account insurance costs, how long it's going to get take to take get paid money. by exactly. insurance. Exactly. And there's so many other yeah, factors that come into I mean, imagine if you ran a patient. business, right? Someone wants to buy some product from me and they have insurance that I have to deal with. So they say, okay, I want to buy your products, but I'm going to use my insurance, whatever it is. Let's right. say it's business insurance, business cost insurance, whatever you want to call it. And now I have to take that into account when I decide what my products should cost. And I can promise you they're going to cost a lot more than they do right now as a result of that. Because I have to take into account how much I'm going to lose, how long it's going to take for me to get paid, if I'm ever going to get paid. There's a lot of nuisance that comes with it. But we have these crazy ideas that health insurance is a right. And it really isn't. And people say, well, what about people falling through the cracks? What about people? It's like, look. There will be people who are generous who decide, look, I'm not in it for the money. I'm going to provide a clinic that's way cheaper. That's what the free, that's, the, that's what will happen in a free market. You can you'll have nonprofits in place to help people that can't afford these things and so forth. So it's it sounds overly simplistic, but I think it would, ultimately I think it would be a lot better than the mess we're dealing with right now. And then people well, always well look at these other countries where it's, everything is 100% covered, but how good, how good is to. the quality? Well, how good is the <laughs> exactly. quality that you're getting? In Canada, exactly. you have to wait several months for a basic I was about treatment. To say, have if you ever gotten? If you need have you cancer, ever had cancer, in cancer, yeah. Have you ever had cancer yeah. and lived in Canada? Have you ever had? Have you ever like got shot and had to go to a hospital in London? You know, my <laughs> thing is, or, or India or somewhere like that. It's like so. If you haven't experienced that, don't talk about those countries. You know, if you haven't been and experienced it yourself firsthand, you're just going by what. The mainstream media or the propaganda machine has been telling you, you know, what's going on in order to get you to comply, you know, and yeah. question that. You really question it. Talk to someone who's lived there. You know, we, you know, we had our friend who went through that, that, that same situation is that the whole medical system and healthcare system in Canada, and we watched him pretty much die. You know, yeah. when there were so many other alternatives he could have had, which could have worked out a lot better. But again, being in that system, all it did was just prolong the death by another year. For the most well, part. Well, it, it makes and, and, people make bad decisions, right? Because yes, you're looking does. at, like Thomas brought up, you're going, okay, what does my health insurance cover? And then you're going to pick an option there. Exactly. You're not even going to consider stuff that you have to pay for out of pocket, even though it could be dramatically better because it's not covered by your health insurance. I remember my mother right. had high blood pressure her whole life, right? She was always on blood pressure medications. Right. And I found a couple supplements. One's called Holostrol. The other one's called Hyperteen by Chi Health that were very effective. I'd had, I'd had other clients use them and they worked very well. And I tried to get her to use that, but she don't. She looked at the cost of it, and she didn't want to buy it because it was more expensive than the free blood pressure medication. And I <laughs> right, said, "Mom, right, I'll buy it right. for it." And my and my dad makes good money, all right? They're not poor. I was like, "Mom, I'll buy you a case and send it over." And then she's like, "No, no, I'm just gonna stick with what I'm doing." 
Yeah, that's you know never addressed the blood pressure. Yeah, that reminds me of another point to make up. Uh, make as um, I can't tell you. So I've experienced this personally in my own family, and I've seen lots of just lots of people I met over the years. You know that have let's just say they have financial resources, and their mom or dad will get cancer or get sick, and um, they'll tell their mom, "Hey." You know, I'm going to take care of this. It's going to be, you know, seventy-two thousand. Here's what's going to be done. And the family member says, "I don't want you spending that kind of money on me." Right. And then, essentially, the you know, usually it's the child, you know, so it's you know, professional adult that's got to then pay that they want to pay for their parent because they love the parent. But the parents like, no, don't do this. And they basically watch them. It's 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 almost like like a depression into a form of suicide, you know, so I'm not going to do anything because it's too much because to, from a model where years ago it was kind of like, well, I was never six. I never saw a doctor. And today what we know is, well, years ago, people were very different than people today. It's a totally different world now. But but, but what are these people saving the money for, right? Isn't that, I mean, the whole point of having a lot of money stowed away is for this kind of stuff. Like I don't want to spend the money. Okay. You'd rather die. Well, with those parents, you know, they they don't want their children, you know, don't I don't want you to spend that kind of money on me. And then you put yourself in a bind or whatever else. And, yeah. you know, or, I, or I've lived my life, you know, so I don't want to, you know, <laughs> I don't want to impose on yours. But guess what? If you die and I knew that it was something I could have done to help you get better and I didn't make that choice and I didn't override your veto, you know, to help you get that help that you, you know, you needed, then guess what? It's a burden now because I have to live with that for the rest of my life. And I think a lot of times those children don't think about that or they think that, but they don't want to say that because they don't want to hurt their parents' feelings or make them feel guilty. But I'm like, you're feeling guilty. So that's the biggest thing is like when you can explain to them like, no, look here in the long run, here's the deal. I need you. I'm not ready for you to go. And I feel like, look, here, yes, selfish to even think that or whatever else. But, yeah, we still have some things we need to do. And you know what? Here's some treatment that can actually Take care of what you got going on, and let's let's just do that. Why not? Come on, you owe it to you. see. Then you can play the guilt card. Like, what about your grandkids? Or what about this, that, and the other? You know, you can play that same card on them, <laughs> and, and you can always catch them with the kids, with the grandkids, always. So, but then again, you know, then you also have on the flip side that you have those children who have all that money, and they're just thinking like, okay, when the, when the parents are like, no, don't spend that on me, blah blah, and they're like, well, okay, I tried. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, but I mean, when it comes up. to your health. When it comes to your health, that's not the place to be a penny pincher, right? That's yeah, not man. where you want to be frugal. You know, blow all the money you need to blow. When it comes to your health, that's where you spend whatever you need to spend to get the job done right. But it's funny how people are frugal and cheap asses when it comes to their health, yet they'll buy expensive cars. They're buying expensive houses. They're buying they have expensive vacations and all those other material right. crap that really doesn't mean a thing. But when yeah, it comes to their health, like, well, I don't want to buy that food. It's those organic strawberries are a buck more you know, than, yeah. than the other ones. <laughs> I just want to say this one thing when you brought up the whole thing about, you know, health, people thinking that health care is a right. It's so funny that so many people get, you know, they get their panties in a twist when they, you know, oh, well, you know, everyone should be entitled to health care. Well, the key word right there was entitled. That that already made your, ballot, <laughs> yeah. made your argument in balance. Right you know, you know, it's my, you know, so, but when they sit, they get pissed off and really want to fight for health care for all, but no one wants to fight for health education for all because that's where everything is lacking. Like, why are you not in an uproar to make, why are you not pushing the government 
to be better as far as like regulations on crappy food and, and crappy food industry. But then it's like, well, you know, you want to sit there and mess with big business because, you know, that's a slippery slope. You want to go there and, you know, the government's getting involved in business. Well, it's too much, it's too much government, but yet it's not too much government when they're trying to tell you that everyone needs to have insurance, especially if you're the one who cannot quote unquote afford insurance. You know, instead of thinking about the actually, let's talk about what got you there. Let's talk about what got your health in a bad place in the first place. It was a lack of education. Then why are why are you not pushing for the government to have better education on being healthier, or getting resources there where you can teach you how to actually cook and and, and use. You don't even have to go get organic food, okay? But my thing is, why not have access to? Why can't businesses that want to open up a grocery store in these underserved areas? You know, why are you not giving them loans or why are you trying to discourage them from going there and or tell them to wait until you gentrify the place? And then you can come in there. Then all of a sudden it's like, hey, here we are. Yeah, a little too late. All those those residents that needed you are gone now. You know, these people could already afford you when they live on the other side of town. So no one's really in an uproar about that. It's like this. Everybody wants to address the symptoms of these situations and not, you know, not the actual disease itself, what got everyone there in the first place. So it's kind of like after the fact, you know, it's a reactionary type thing. And a lot of times it's just they hear it and it sounds good depending on who you are. Like, hey, everyone should get health care. And then you just like people who've been paying for it. It's like I had health care, but now it's so freaking expensive. I'm about to join the boat and be with you without having health care. Well, I mean, it's it's so expensive because there's no free market and there's there's no competition among it. Right. So, for example, right. let's say let's say we had a similar model with personal trainers. Mm-hmm. The cost would be a lot more because now everyone has to take insurance into account because right. insurance doesn't cover this. One trainer may charge 500 bucks, but that's not your only option. You can go to someone who charges 50 bucks, maybe right. better or worse. You may even find someone who charges 20 bucks or another right. person comes along and says, hey, I'll give you this package. So there's options. There's competition. People right. have to compete for your business. So let the medical people compete for your business, too, where there's plenty of options to choose from. I think overall, and, and rather than also, oh, here's another thing about insurance, right? Like I pay my insurance every single month. I go years without ever using it for anything. Exactly. Right? That money's oh, yeah. just thrown away. How many of you how many of you I'd rather pay for what I'm actually using since you've been driving? Yeah. How many of you been paying car insurance since you were like eighteen or whatever? <laughs> and now you're like fifty, sixty, seventy years old and you've never had an accident in your freaking life. Now look at all the money that you you've been donating to that insurance company. Because that's what it's been. It's pretty much been a donation, but the sad thing is you can't even write it off half the time. <laughs> so, you know, just think about all that which you could have done with that money. It's like, you know what? You could have Use all that money to buy yourself a driver and never have to drive again. You know, you just had like a limo service, you know, working for you or something like that, man. So, it, but the thing is, it's one of those things where it's like, well, you know what everyone says, you know, it's better to have it or not need it than need it to not have it. Well, sometimes we see a lot when people need it and they have it and it's almost like they never had it. So then what? You know, with all those cute little phrases. That well, I mean, insurance should be you're setting up a, like, I, I have a savings account just for that. Right, like here's yeah, money hey, set aside for thing, any right. kind of catastrophic event. So let's say something happens, I can call up Dr. Inkledon and say, "Hey, guess what? I need to come out that, here and do this." And he'll say, "Hey, Mike, here's how much it costs." I said, "No problem. I have an account right here just for that purpose. That I'm ready to come out." What I was eventually going to get to with you know Dr. Inkledon is like, you know, look, you know, people are going to listen to this like, well, why well, can't afford you know you because my insurance doesn't cover it. Here's my thing: we know we're not going to necessarily be 100% healthy all the freaking time. Why not instead of just giving 
instead of just passing that buck over to someone else to, to hold out for you, like the insurance company, once you go ahead and take care of it yourself and start putting money aside, that same money you would pay for those high premiums that some people are dealing with, start putting that to the side and then put that in a situation where that money is actually going to make some interest or something else so it builds up. So, again, there's that just-in-case money right there. So when you go see Thomas, it's just like, hey, this is what it's going to cost, but, hey, I know we can do this and this. This is what this treatment is going to do. Hey, man, here you go. Here's a check. Also, I mean, it. it's about helping people in your community, too, right? So people were like, what about right. people falling through the cracks? Well, we go, we'll go, why don't you do something to help those people? What are you doing for those people falling through the cracks? You've acknowledged them. Exactly. <laughs> let's get rid there. of all this health insurance. Let's let the free market drive down prices. And let's say I know someone in my neighborhood who something happens to him or her. And I go, you know what? That's terrible. Let's put together a fundraiser to help you out. I don't want to leave right. you in the cracks. I'm not going to just walk around the neighborhood and know you're in the situation and not do anything about it. Let people become more responsible, not only for their own health, but for their neighbor's health, their friend's health, people in your community. Instead of just relying on the government to come in and save everybody. That's another problem we have is that, well, you know, the government needs to do this. The government needs to do that. I always say that. I always say that. A lot of people protect us from all enemies, foreign and domestic, and pretty much right there. (laughs) Save so that we can have businesses and be and and set things up. Otherwise, leave us alone. (laughs) <laughs> it's always I always say it's that attitude of you see someone on the side of the road and their car's broken down. You're like, oh, wish the government would do something about it. You just keep going. <laughs> no, I know that's not a, the greatest example because there's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't pull over for some stranger on the side of the road, especially if it's the middle of the night. It's like, but there's like the a lot of reasons you shouldn't have the government want to intervene in all these situations too. <laughs> it's the equivalent of that. So yeah, man. It's like, we're going to put these things in place to take care of you. It's like, well, you're a grown person. It's like, why don't you put a couple of things in place to take care of yourself? Well, I got five kids and I can't afford it. It's like, why the fuck did you have five kids? <laughs> you know, nobody wants to say that either because it comes off so callous. Like, no, no politician ever wants to go down that rabbit hole. They're like, but, 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 you know, that's not a right either. It's like, yeah, you have a right to have those many kids, but you don't have a right for your lifestyle to be subsidized because you can't afford to have those kids. If you can't afford it, then don't have it. <laughs> you know? but, these, but it's like no one wants to go down that road because it's like, well, fuck you, man. Not everyone's got money. No, on, no, don't fuck me. That's your problem now. You're fucking too many people, dude. <laughs> you need to stop fucking, okay? <laughs> so Thomas, man, uh, you know, we're going off. Yeah, of these we got a little topic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> these are don't, don't worry, guys. I was recording this one. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, we're going to edit all that stuff out before this yeah. episode is released. Yeah, yeah. No. no, but I mean, what are what do you think? What are some smart preventive things that people can do? I mean, we know the obvious stuff, right, such as diet yeah, well, and exercise so, you know, and restoration. Well, so uh, uh, do you want to start recording now because we can talk about all this stuff, I think. No, I think we've been recording all this time. Oh, we've been recording. <laughs> good, good, good. That's a pretty good like that. that right, okay, We're not uh, going to delete that. <laughs> uh, so just a couple of things I wanted to share is, you know, uh, when, I, when working with people, if I found someone that, w- that wanted to do something, you know, uh, like so uh, I, had a, I had an example years ago. I had this person on welfare that came in, and I didn't know, you know, I, I don't know people's financial background when they walk through the door. I don't ask them, like, hey, how much you make? You know, it, there's not that kind of stuff. And so a uh, person came in, and they needed some testing done. It was seven grand at the time, and... They said, uh, all right, I don't have this money, but let me figure it out. I said, okay, you know, there's no pressure. I'm not going to have anyone call on you. And about a week later, the guy reached back out, 
And uh, so, yeah, I'd like to move forward. And it's okay. And then we, we came in, and I was drawing his blood. And we're talking. It's like, well, I lost my job, and I, you know, had to go on welfare because I was injured. And I said, oh, man, so how did you, know, how did you get the money? Because, you know, seem, I was curious. He's like, I had an old truck, and I just sold it. And I decided, you know, my health is more important to me than, yeah, you know, than that you truck. Mm-hmm. And and what I what I I kind of learned from that experience is like here's a guy who's just motivated, right? When when you right. and every person I've ever met, when I want to do something, they figured it out. I, you know whether they had a, I've seen guys with no money do fundraisers and raise, I mean six figures, like that's a lot of money to raise. I didn't even if you ask me, hey, could you have you done that? I'd be like, well, not in that regard. You know, I've written grants and brought in money for universities, but I never, you know, initiated like a fundraising campaign and that kind of stuff, and. I mean, lo and behold, I meet people that have done this stuff when they had to. And so there's, you know, there's lots of, let's say, resources and opportunities, especially today where, thanks to the Internet, I mean, you could be in front of anyone in seconds, right? I could be talking to someone on the other side of the world. Uh, I interact with doctors from Poland and Russia and Germany every day. Um, just, like, send out an email, and then when they get a chance, they respond back, and then, you know, it goes back and forth. And uh, so there's, you know, the world is a smaller place now because of that. As far as uh, you had mentioned earlier, Mike, about, you know, like preventative type stuff, you know, I'd, I'd like to maybe break the mindset of like certain things being expensive because I watch people spend all kinds of money on stuff that will only harm them, like alcohol, you know, going out, drinking at night, or buying a car that goes super fast, <laughs> you know, and they do that because they want to. And yet, when it comes to their health, they make a decision, oh, that's a lot of money. Well, what if you wanted to do it? Then, of course, it would be a different scenario. But in terms of, let's say, things that you don't have to spend any money on, right? Number one, uh, improve quality of sleep. Uh, lots of people, when I, when I when we kind of go through this process, we find they've been sleeping on the same bed maybe 10 or 15 years. <laughs> so I'm not saying you have to go out and buy a new bed. It has to be top of the line or anything like that. But you may want to think, man, how old is this bed? I know you're comfortable on it now, but it may not be structurally sound, and that may interfere right. with your sleep quality. So maybe you toss and turn more at night, so as a result, you don't go through all the different stages of sleep that you should. Yeah. So you may have been in bed eight hours, but maybe you really got quality sleep four of those eight. Um, and, and the reason why I mentioned the sleep is, uh, you know, when I was younger, there wasn't as much data about sleep as there is today. And I can remember doctors saying the same answer they say today. I would go to my mentors. I'd go to some guys. Hey, you know, uh, when I get more sleep, I just feel way stronger. And I feel, you know, like having you know, more sex and just all the stuff. Is there anything to sleep and hormones? And they would be like, no, there's no research on that. <laughs> so now today, we know, yeah, there's lots of research on that. But, you know, almost 30 years ago, there was no research on this stuff, or at least it wasn't as accessible as it is today. Right. And that's kind of where we are with a lot of things. You know, you're going to always hear there's no research on something. And that's okay. People often use that as an excuse, though, as well, right? Yeah. Like some things are pretty obvious. Like Charles Poliquin has that joke, look, there's no study that getting kicked in the balls hurts. But we don't need the fun to study, you know, yeah, right. to prove that. Yeah, we're jumping off a building will hurt you. You know, there's things you just don't have to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess if you needed to study the forces and the mechanisms, you know, but you know, the, the other aspect yeah. of that is uh, who's going to volunteer for this stuff, you know? I'm not, not volunteering to get kicked in my balls, you know? Uh, yeah, there's, some, there's some obstacles there. But anyway, uh, sleep number one. 
Yeah, and, uh, no doubt. Because we know today that uh, people that work the uh, graveyard shift or the third shift, so let's say it doesn't matter the profession, but let's say you're working like 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., whether you're you know, a doctor in a hospital, whether you're working outside of a medical setting, let's say, uh, like, for example, people that work in uh, bars, nightclubs, even restaurants, you know, like oh, that yeah. serve, all those mm-hmm. people, they're all susceptible to uh, have an increased risk for all cancers. Because no once doubt. you throw off the sleep cycle, you throw off a whole bunch of uh, healthy substances or molecules in the body that's going to lead to more long-term problems. Do you find that estrogen levels are higher in men who have sleep issues, such as working those graveyard shifts? You know, I would say, generally speaking, yeah, but it, you know, there's cyclical relationships. Like, so let's just say you see me and I'm and I'm lean, and I see, now five years later you see me and I'm fat, and I got high estrogen. Well, what came first, the fat or the estrogen? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they both go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah they do. Of, they're, they're they're connected. I mean, there's no. Like doubt. You're overweight, so your estrogen levels are high, and then your estrogen levels are high, which keeps you overweight. Overweight. <laughs> <laughs> But there's there's other aspects of that too, like um, as you get fatter, your ability to like your insulin sensitivity changes, right. so you have more insulin right. resistance. Right. And insulin can drive SHBG production from the liver. Then the inflammation from the fat cells could drive inflammation from the liver. So like, it's kind of like whatever testosterone you do have isn't working, and then right. whatever estrogen you do have seems that much worse. You know, so yeah. on paper yeah, right. you may be at a normal range. But functionally, it may be like zero testosterone and like a thousand yeah. estrogen, you know. Right, and, right. And now for uh, for cancers that are, let's say, estrogen driven, and we test we test cancer cells for estrogen receptors. And uh, when I say we, I mean the labs that we use. I don't physically do it, but I talk yeah. to you know the guys that do it and say, hey, in terms of a strategy, then what do you see, you know, working to kill this cancer cell? Um, and by the way, I have uh, two lines of questioning whenever I'm dealing with another professional. I ask them the standard, you know, kind of, you know, um, kind of question like, uh, could you please share your interpretation of the findings, you know? And almost every man or woman says, well, the reference range is this and the statistics <laughs> and the variability and all this stuff. They go into st- standard deviation. They kind of like talk all this technical mumbo jumbo, which right. really doesn't help me in any way to make a better decision because I could have read that on my own, right? Yeah, exactly. And what I want from this guy that's who's smart and know this woman that knows what they're doing, I want the stuff I can't read. You know, I don't need them to read yeah. me the number. I can see the number. So then I hit him with, <laughs> yeah. if this was your mom or if this was your son, you know, or whatever the appropriate, you know, representative family member would be, if this was your wife, what would you do? I get almost a totally different answer. And this is where you get the stuff that you can't read. This is where yeah. you get, like, the extra level of interpretation. Like, you know, it's kind of like personal now. Like, this, I'm not going to let this person die type of thing, you know, versus right. before right. it was a number. And what I find is that I always have to do that, even with guys that I've been dealing with for years. I still have to pull out that, you know, ace card and say, okay, here we go again. I've done this a hundred times okay. with you. Let's try it again. <laughs> and it always works. I always get wow. a different answer. And uh, I, I mention that only because I think sometimes when people are talking to someone, like say you're you're in a uh, you're across the table, you know, you're talking to a doctor about your cancer treatment, they hear one answer and they just run with that instead of you know digging a little deeper, you know, probing a little bit more and saying, hey, 
what would you do if this was your sister on the table here, you know, or your wife, whatever the case may be, or your, you know, your son, and then just see what they say then. And uh, yeah. surprisingly, you get different answers, um, at least if they're being uh, forthright, you know. Yeah. So, um, so we uh, to kind of get back to what we talked about earlier, we got sleep as uh, something that. You know, what, what about sugar fueling cancer? Right? We always hear that argument that sugar fuels cancer. Yeah, so so glucose does drive cancer. So um, there's, uh, I mean, I guess the uh, the danger in that statement is, well, you're sure you could find certain cancers that may rely less on glucose as a fuel, right? Right. But generally right. speaking. Um, I could tell you that one of the ways we would treat, like say a universal way I would treat any cancer regardless of like the geographic diagnosis you got previously and regardless of some of the molecular diagnostics, we know there are metabolic principles to cancer. And so the idea is we want to starve cancer of a blood supply. Yeah. So that's referred to as anti-angiogenesis. And then we want to interfere with the glycolytic metabolism of cancer. So basically, we want to starve cancer of glucose. And um, now some suggestions that are made, and there's some really recent papers about like, okay, should I do a ketogenic diet, for example, if I have cancer? Right. And, you know, mm. I get asked this like almost every single day by, because, you know, someone that's diagnosed with cancer, this is a new experience for them, right? And so they come in, yeah. say, oh, I've right. read online about doing ketogenic diets. <laughs> Most of the time, it's these recommendations are from people, and these could be, you know, professionals at cancer centers that aren't actually measuring molecular details. They're looking at outcomes. And yeah. when you're in front of me, I don't care about the outcome of a group. I care about you as the individual. Yeah. I'm going to study you. And when I study you, what I find is that some people will take protein, and then they break down that protein into the amino acids. They will deaminate. They'll take off parts of the per, of the amino acid structures, like the nitrogen and the three hydrogen, and they're left with this carbon skeleton, and they could very quickly convert that to glucose. Right. Some people take glycerol from you know, triacylglycerols or triglycerides and uh -huh. convert that into glucose. And right. this is why not you know not everyone that goes on a ketogenic diet experiences a tremendous drop in blood sugar. Like it should go down and kind of basically level off. But yeah. you're not seeing people walk around in 70s. You know, you still see some people are over 100. Oh, yeah. And, and the concern is that if I'm not successful at lowering glucose for someone, then, um, you know, the, the cancer is still going to have, let's say, the metabolic driving force, if you will, to keep going. So we look at strategies that are more reproducible. So normally, and, and to kind of uh, create a lower glucose level, uh, we do things with alpha-lipoic acid, hydroxycitric acid, and metformin. We don't just use one of the three. We use all three. And well, we what about bur berberine? Have you ever – berberine is yeah. supposedly – just yeah. as effective as metformin. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, so uh, so I would say the combination of berberine with alpha-lipoic acid is superior to metformin Okay. in, in certain cases. You know, okay. you know, keep in mind, think of it this way. If, let's say, you're giving me one chance to get it right, I don't have time to test whether sure. uh, you know, alpha-lipoic acid and berberine works better than metformin for you. <laughs> right. right? I, if, if I fail, you die. So yeah. the way I'm approaching this is I want a home run. I don't want to get on first base. I want to hit the ball, and it never lands <laughs> again. That's what I want. And in order to accomplish that, I'm looking at 
a lot of things and I'm building in redundancy into our system because let's just say you're that one in a million person and let's say you responded better than metformin and I gave you just alpha poic acid and berberine, right? Or the other way. Now, what we'll say is that uh, both of those, uh, let's say, approaches independently, they have pretty impressive data for them. So, you know, my thought about combining them is not alone and I'm not unique in that, you know, thought process. Lots of other docs have also come up with that as well on their own. Um, the challenge really, though, is um, let's say uh, if you had someone with cancer and almost uh, everyone I've ever tested, you know, their glucose levels were high. The reason they were high may vary considerably. You know, some guys just had really poor diets. Some guys just had very poor sleep patterns. And your sleep causes a lot of glucose dysfunction. Yeah. When we first get you doing a strategy, so let's say now we clean up your diet, that in general will lower your glucose levels. And now we give you, you know, metformin, alpha-poic acid, and berberine, and hydroxycitric acid, and we also... Do you use uh, alpha-poic acid, or you just use straight alpha-poic acid? Well, if if it's someone, let's say, that's not price uh, sensitive, I would do R. Yeah. If it was yeah. someone that yeah. says, "Hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm got a budget, and my goal is trying to, you know, my goal is uh, we're focused on the win and the result. We're not focused on revenue. So it's a right. very different right. approach. So I work with people. So if you said, "Hey, what should I do?" I would say, "I, Mike." Here's what I would do, gold standard. If you say, man, that's more money than I have right now, it's all right. Well, I don't want you to not do anything. Let's see what yeah. we can get done that will help right. you. And you know, and we'll come up with like tier one, two, and three type of things. So let's just say, um, like maybe another uh, way of looking at it, some people have difficulty uh, swallowing, particularly if they have a head, neck, throat type of cancer. Yeah. Um, so imagine you have a block, you know, in your esophagus or some, somewhere around there. Well. And, you know, like on paper, I might be like, hey, I got these 50 pills that will really change your life, right? But now how do I get those 50 pills into you, right? This is a practical matter. So even when cash flow, you know, is not an issue, we might say, all right, let's get these guys started. Let's get some little bit of results here, and let's figure out how we're going to fast track this, um, you know, so that, you know, we want to win at the end. How do we get there? And so there's, you know, we have to have a model that's fluid and flexible enough to address the different types of challenges we're going to encounter. So, um, you, so you brought up kind of, let's just say, glucose uh, management or glucose control, kind of like another right. area. And that can, it can be done. So if you said, look, man, you know, I have no insurance, I got no job, I got cancer, what am I going to do? Well, then we, I would probably tell you on those conditions, go ketogenic, right? Because you don't have to spend any more money, you know, to buy something else you don't already have. You can just change your diet. If you said, look, man, I, you know, um, I have a budget, I would look at your budget, and then we would try to pick certain things, and this is where we'd look at, okay, do you have insurance? All right, what substances does your insurance cover? All right, let's make sure you get that. And, you know, some people insurance pay nothing for metformin and uh, naltrexone, you know, and low-dose naltrexone, um, somewhere around 5 milligram range, or I believe, I'm sorry, point, uh, I have to double-check, see the point five or 5 milligram range, you basically boost immune function. And these are the uh, you know the types of things that you want your healthcare team or professionals thinking about. Like, you know, if your natural killer cells aren't doing their job, what are we doing to help them? Now, outside of uh, this, there's a, I want to make a little bit of a tangent. You know, earlier when you're talking about uh, Andy and how uh, he got the uh, lymphoma, <laughs> and so 
Um, one point that I want to make is, you know, exercise in general is uh, cancer-fighting. Yet how do, we do see that some people that exercise aggressively do get cancers. And one of the things that's kind of come out is the impact of exercise and epigenetics and micronutrients. So certain nutrients, let's just say B vitamins as a group, they help with methylation and they help with doing, uh, let's say, certain metabolic events that fight cancer. Well, let's say now you work out aggressively and you're depleting your B vitamins and you're messing up your methylation pathways while you're doing a healthy strategy, you know, a healthy uh, mode of activity in general, if you're not replacing those B vitamins, you may be creating some molecular damage that over time leads to more complications in the future. So just like, you know, when you use your car, you got to keep putting more gas in it. Instead so of more you drive your car, the more gas you got to keep putting in. The more active we are, the more we have to think about the micronutrients we're putting into our body. Because those micronutrients, there's going to be turnover. We're going to use them up. And so if um, you know, if we were now to take some of that information and look at in terms of strategies that people could do, I would look at um, exercise strategies that uh, minimize the uh, drain on our nutrients but maximize the return that we get from them. So um, I would do a lot of um, exercises based on improving brain function. Uh, because we know if your brain controls the rest of you better, you could simultaneously improve strength, power, speed, flexibility, and endurance. And it's uh, it's very counterintuitive, like the way most people are conditioned. They think, well, if I want to be a better runner, I have to run. And if I want to bench press more, I have to bench press. But they're assuming that the internal connections of their, let's say, brain with the rest of their body is optimal. And I can tell yeah. you, and myself and every human being I've ever tested, it's not. Right. I lifted some huge weights and then found out that I had major disconnection. And so, I mean, not mm. like um, not like a brain damage type of thing, or at least not in the classic sense. Like, like there was it wasn't like a broken bone equivalent for my brain. But let's just say regions of my brain were not activating as well as they were on the other side of the brain. So, like its counterparts, so like left side versus right side. Yeah. As I started, uh, you know, getting this stuff tested and figuring out how to improve it, instantly my quality of movement improved. Instantly my endurance gets better. Well, I wasn't even doing any endurance work. And I've sensed now we've done this on so many people. And the reason why um, this has application to people with cancer, when I see people go through very harsh treatments, the harsh treatments rob people of energy, they create brain damage over time. There's all kinds of data on the negative consequences of chemotherapy drugs on the brain and the rest of the nervous system. Most classical one is neuropathies. So now you've got pain in your feet or in your knees or some other part of your body. And so what is then the doctors doing? They're giving you other drugs to fight the neuropathy instead of saying, well, maybe we should find a better approach. How about an approach that doesn't hurt you as I'm using it on you, you know? And so um, what I see is people then decline over time physically. Well, imagine if you move less, it's going to be easier for tumors to form in your body. It's going to be easier for cancer to grow and multiply. So we want people moving. We don't want people sitting when they have cancer. But how do they do that when they're tired? It's a tough, you know, it's a tough battle. So uh, every single 
cancer patient that we have here works out. Every single person does something every day, and we monitor their progress. Are they getting stronger? Are they getting more fit in all kinds of areas? And since we bias the training, it would be the same way if, you, if I came to you and you said, hey, I'm going to design an exercise program. You kind of see where my weakest at, where I need the most help. We kind of start in that area. And then, you know, you kind of get it going so that whatever my goals are, we're going to eventually get there, but it may not be where you start day one, you know? Yeah. And same thing with, you know, um, so like before someone, because someone has like a diagnosis of lung cancer at stage four, we don't say, okay, we give up on you. <laughs> we say, all right, how do we modify everything that we need to do with you? Because we want the home run here. And, yeah. you know, you can't, you can't really, there's too much at stake. You can't really sacrifice or give up on anything. Then, um, so uh, with with the B vitamins, with the B vitamins, Thomas, do you recommend a B complex or a B one hundred? Is there a particular brand or type of B complex well, that you recommend what, as well? Well, I, so I would say, let's just say, if um, a general statement and uh, someone doesn't have any type of testing to know like better details, I would recommend um, a B complex only because we don't know what's low, what's missing. I right. would recommend what we call like the activated types of B vitamins. So you know, like, um, you have, like, riboflavin and pyridoxine, and when they get ingested by the body, they get phosphorylated. So now you have, like, the phosphate right. version of them. I would recommend the phosphate versions uh, because then, because uh, we're kind of like, let's assume, like, somebody has an allele. So they have a particular gene that doesn't convert the inactive forms of the B vitamins to the active forms. By giving them the active forms anyway, you've addressed, you've addressed that issue. So whether if someone has the issue or not won't matter. Because they're going to be covered, so they get yeah. Life, Life Extension has a good brand, and it's only nine dollars for I think a yeah. hundred capsules, so it's, it's inexpensive. Yeah, and, and here's so now we start getting into some things that this is the part that's like um, some supplements like selenium, um, B complex. You can get really good products from a variety of manufacturers and vendors, and they're pretty expensive, like well underneath the twenty dollars price point per month. So if you took me, you know, a couple of them, maybe it might be at twenty bucks or more. Yet, despite all the data showing that this is important for our immune cells to work, this is important for our ability to fight inflammation. You don't see what do you see every major center doing is saying, "Oh, don't stop taking supplements." <laughs> so the very things that can help you, they're recommending yeah. you don't take because they yeah. don't want to have to deal with the time element of mm -hmm. talking to someone. So it's, yeah, it's, that's right. It's time. That's the main reason. At least that's when I talk to docs from other incentives that kind of run people through where they spend 8 to 15 minutes with each person. I go, how is it yeah. you don't do all these tests and how is it you only spend 8 minutes? And like, we don't have enough time. I'm like, well, maybe you should look at this a different way, right? Because you can't fix someone with 8 to 15 minutes of time. Right. This doesn't work. Right. Uh, be sure to catch us on the next episode of part two of our discussion with Dr. Thomas Linkledon as we discuss cancer, alternative treatments, as well as inflammation and much more on the next episode of the Live Life Progressive Show. Take care, everybody.